You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. When I started reading about the allegations against Andrew Cuomo, there was one person whose analysis I really wanted to hear. Rebecca Traister, who's writing about the Me Too movement and, more generally, the bad behavior of men, especially progressive men, has been bracing, revelatory, and necessary. And I'm pleased to tell you that this is the person you're going to hear from this week. Rebecca is a senior writer for New York Magazine, and her cover story about Cuomo is titled Abuse and Power. I will drop a content warning here in case you weren't thinking about it. We will be discussing sexual harassment and the more hard to define experience of people using their power to erase and delegitimize the women around them. That's actually the thing that can kind of trigger me, to be honest. So do what you need to do to get ready for the conversation, even if that means saving it for later. If what you need right now is to talk to someone about your experience, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network is there for you. You can call them at 800-656-HOPE or access their live support at online.rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N, Rain with two N's. And remember, there is no such thing as an experience that doesn't count or isn't bad enough to get help for. If it happened to you, it matters it counts, and you deserve help. Rebecca Traster, coming right up. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. It's always nice to be here. I mean, one of the most fascinating things, of course, to me, is that he was so held up as the kind of progressive's answer to Trump, right? He was the anti-Trump. But your reporting sort of suggests that he's not the left's answer to Trump. He is the left's Trump. People who were paying close attention, there's a great thing that Alex Perrine wrote in The New Republic about the television character Cuomo versus the newspaper character Cuomo. And if you had the sort of time, interest, patience, and focus to be following the Cuomo administration, you, you knew that he wasn't. Um, the answer to Trump. And you knew actually a lot of the very things that have gotten reported critically over the past uh, few weeks and past couple months about him. But it was very hard for that to to break through into a mass understanding where, yes, indeed. And look, it makes sense. He's a famous guy. Um, he has, in fact, worked to cultivate a television persona. So um, so he's familiar to a lot of people, both within the state, outside of the state. He is a literal patriarch, right? Like his father was the was a three-term governor of New York. 
His brother is a CNN star. He used to be married into the Kennedy clan, right? Like he comes from all these, he's attached to all these different lines of familiar power in the United States. Um, kinds of power that are comfortable to us. You may like them, you may hate them, but they're like, they're America. We recognize them. They are, they're comfy. Okay. And I think I would, I, what I want to point out is something I should have caught myself, which is that a lot of times in media, when we, we use, we're told as writers, we shouldn't use the passive voice. And there's very good reasons for that. And it's really important to be clear about who's holding up whom. Like I said, he was held up, right? And it is important to say who was doing that. I think a media presented him and many people in politics, especially uh, in the wake of the election of Donald Trump, who wanted there to be a bulwark against Trumpism, looked to New York and saw a big progressive state run by a Democratic governor who was familiar and a character you could grasp onto and saw potential there. And there were others been paying close and critical attention to the way that Andrew Cuomo and his administration had been governing New York through a decade, who probably would have been like, not so fast, don't pin your don't pin your hopes on this guy or his administration. But the overall um, view of Cuomo was, yeah, like progressive, a, a Democrat running a progressive state. And I think there was a lot of hope, a lot of, a lot of people put a lot of hope in him. There was also this strange phenomenon of sexualizing him a little, the Cuomo sexual thing and uh, some celebrities, various cele- celebrities talking about his good looks and whatnot. I will say right off, this always disturbs me. There's this weird tick on the left about turning even marginally competent men into like some kind of like matinee idol, you know? This is one of the things that I sort of uh, get to in my piece is the way that so much of our sense of what power and leadership looks like has historically been built around our ideas of white masculinity and ideas in turn about white masculinity and and the appeal of white masculinity, which is very often presented as a sexual appeal, have in turn been built around power. And so when we got to a point, and this was especially true around Cuomo at at the start of COVID when he was giving these daily briefings and here he was literally actually a matinee idol, right? He was showing up every afternoon in people's living, living rooms as they were at home, scared, nothing to do but look at TV. And he was the leader, right? And, and in that moment, here's the one, and it's, I don't think I have a lot to say that is defensive of Cuomo. This is the only place where I probably edge close. In that period of grave terror um, in New York, Knowing that Trump was not only out of his depth, but is a malevolent actor in this situation. I think that we who even have sympathy for that or felt it a little bit should remember that when we talk about Trump supporters, because... There's a similar like I just feel like some people like, how could you do that? How can you support him? There's actually there's people who find him attractive. How could you find him attractive? And. It's a natural human thing to do to like want to if you think someone's competent to sort of be attracted to that people. There are people who think that Trump's competent. Um, 
I don't know. I think it's I think it's something that's in our culture that's deeper than left or right. I do think that here's where I would agree with you is that I do think that we seek out we want to have leadership that we trust. Like it's a very and and in fact, both Cuomo and Trump fit a mold that has historically been presented to us as leadership and which a uh, kind of brutal and bullying approach to communication um, and, to, and to power has been made synonymous with uh, strength, uh, leadership, commitment, and patriotism, right? It is this model of, of brute white patriarchy. Um, or as one of his defenders actually said in the New York Times a few weeks ago, that Cuomo was a master of brutalist political theater. And um, I, I remember reading that, and that is actually something they said as a positive. And I was like, wow, um, what is brutalist political theater? Is it actually just brutal and also theatrical? Like, the, and those, let's think about what that description, because it's not inaccurate, you know? Um, but that is actually completely in line with a version of power that we have. That, that has been a norm in the United States over centuries. And so if you are in moments of peril and you are, and you are seeking um, some sense of assurance or familiarity in a world that is unfamiliar and terrifying, um, it's, it makes sense that many people, for a long time, that kind of power and that expression of power was our only option. More of my discussion with Rebecca in just a minute. A woman's journey from pregnancy to postpartum may be challenging and tough to prepare for. Postpartum is one of the most nutritionally demanding stages for many women, yet it's often overlooked. After giving birth, mothers may be pulled in every direction, possibly forgetting to prioritize themselves. So introducing Ritual's newest member, Essential Postnatal, for the arrival of a new mother's new nutrient needs postpartum. Now, I am not pregnant, but I can attest to daily ritual, which is part of my daily ritual. I've been taking it for years, and its minty see-through capsules still make me happy in the morning. It has all the vitamins of any multivitamin and has them in a form that helps boost some of the other medications I take. Essential postpartum has iron and iodine, which are key nutrients that help support lactation. It's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, free of major allergens, and formulated without artificial colors or preservatives. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. Backed by the first visible supply chain of its kind, you'll know what nutrients your multivitamin is made of and where they come from. A mother doesn't always put her own needs first, but Ritual does. That's why they're offering my listeners 10% off their first three months. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start. That's ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. Now, I host a science fiction podcast. It's called Space the Nation, wherever you get your podcast. And one of the things we do is revisit books and movies we loved growing up. Some of them, like Alien, hold up. Others, like Ender's Game, not so much. Now, today, we're living in a golden age of media. There are instant classics on TV, in the movies, and in games. And you know what is an instant classic? Best Fiends, the top-rated mobile puzzle adventure. Best Fiends has a world full of lovable characters, thousands of levels, and more content gets added all the time. I love that it's exciting and compelling, but doesn't involve killing anything. The levels get harder and harder, but the learning curve is pretty gentle. I don't get frustrated, just challenged. Unlike when, say, I'm doom-scrolling the news. 
Best Fiends is a healthy way to de-stress and take your mind off everything. It's a puzzle game that will give you a sense of success when there is so much out there that doesn't. With Best Fiends, there's something new today and tomorrow and every day after that. Literally thousands of levels to play and counting, plus tons of cute characters to collect. If you never get tired of solving puzzles, good news. Best Fiends, the fun never ends. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or at Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. A lot of the headlines around Cuomo's behavior have been about his sexual predatory actions, right? And there's been a lot of them. And, and uh, we can talk about those, but I think something I haven't really seen is discussed as much, and although you get into it in your piece, is just the general toxicity and bullying. And how we don't have a lot of language for that. Right. And, and we need to get better language for it. And one of the things that I found, in, as I was beginning to report this piece, um, leading up to it, and I reported it fairly quickly, actually, because it was in the midst of this fast-breaking news cycle around Cuomo, and I was trying to keep up. And um, uh, But one of the things that I noticed was happening is there was coverage of, um, you know, what is called the nursing home scandal, which is uh, the New York Attorney General Tish James released a report showing that the Cuomo administration had underreported nursing home deaths by 50%. And this is, it was an early governing decision that Cuomo and the administration made to send, um, elderly people who'd been sick with COVID out of the New York's overcrowded hospitals back into nursing homes. And of course, once in nursing homes, COVID spread like wildfire and many people died. And the attorney general did an investigation into the, this decision and, and released a report showing that the administration had underreported the number of deaths. Um, then his aide, Melissa DeRosa was caught, um, on, on tape explaining to people that they'd actually hidden those numbers, uh, because they didn't want, to be targeted by the Trump administration, which is an incredibly Trumpian move, right? To obscure the reality, like as a political ploy. Then there was additional reporting showing that in fact, three of his top advisors, including Alyssa DeRosa, had altered data, had consciously and actively altered the data uh, and altered reports to obscure those numbers. So it's a story, not only it begins with a bad governing choice um, and it continues to be about cover-up corruption and deception. Uh, and, and, and that report comes out. And then there, in, in, I think because that creates some weakness for this 
previously sort of impenetrable shell of Andrew Cuomo, right? He's been able to behave in all kinds of bad ways over 10 years and still, you know, he has incredibly high approval ratings. People still view him as immensely competent and just really skilled at hard knuckle politics. But then there's this moment of weakness. And in that space comes a state legislator, Assemblyman Ron Kim, who describes how in the wake of the nursing homes report, uh, Andrew Cuomo has called him at home as he's bathing his kids to threaten his job if he keeps criticizing him about the nursing homes. And and that gets a lot of national attention. Ron Kim goes on The View. Then comes this story uh, from Lindsay Boylan, a former aide to Cuomo, alleging that he sexually harassed her in a very... Um, sort of classic sexual harassment way. She worked for him. He asked her, she alleges that he asked her to play strip poker, that he kissed her against her will, that he referred to her by the name of another woman. He said that she resembled, who was rumored to be his ex-girlfriend. Um, then, the, then the story becomes this sort of bifurcated thing. And this is one of the things I was trying to get at. I am going back to your question, I promise. Between there's the story of the nursing homes report and the efforts to cover up those numbers. And then there's the story of the sexual harassment. And I felt like a lot of people were toggling back and forth between those two stories. Um, and in fact, to me, it seemed very clear that they were one story and that Ron Kim was another element of that story. And it's this, it's a story of power abuse. That's what the story is. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, yes, there is a through line here, right? Like it is not it is not bifurcated stories. There is one story. And it, it all has to do with white male patriarchy. And this idea of brutalist political theater is the perfect way to describe it. Because the theater part, I think, is, is something you talk about in your piece, doesn't get talked about enough in the coverage of this, which is that what gets sacrificed when you have a bully in charge is what we saw in the Trump administration, which is nothing gets done. Like, things don't happen. Government doesn't work because there's all this energy and time and prioritizing of the... So there, there are a bunch of really like deep questions here. What is power? What is power for? And what do you use it for? How do you build it, right? And, and how do you maintain it? And how do you make it grow? And, and there are a lot of different answers to that, but here's a traditional answer, and it's one that Andrew Cuomo embodied, right? Um, you, you establish your power by establishing dominance. How do you establish dominance by subjugating other people? This is something that a former speechwriter who spoke to me for the story, who's this brilliant writer, Camone Felix, who worked for him as a speechwriter when she was young. She has since gone on to write literally a book of poetry that was nominated for a National Book Award. And yet she told me that she wrote more than 30 speeches and sets of remarks for Andrew Cuomo, and she thinks he used one, okay? <laughs> so, and she writes about the experience of having been a young Black woman in his administration, where she understood that he was nice to her. In, in her case, she's she doesn't complain about ill treatment from him, except that he didn't use her work. He didn't, he didn't value her intellectually, and she describes the feeling of kind of tokenization and what she calls a subtle form of racialized abuse, which is understanding that she was there to benefit him, to, as she says, to be in the press releases, but not to do the work of shaping his speech and his policy and his ideas. But she also is, is very brilliant and, and says the power is reliant on you have to subjugate somebody in order to emphasize your own power. You have to make someone small in order to emphasize that you are big. And so that takes all of these different forms. And some of them are sexualized and some of them are not. Some of them are about that kind of tokenization, objectification, hiring of young women who fit a certain aesthetic norm. They are young white women. Um, and, and that's a form of discrimination in that, first of all, you're hiring based on aesthetic qualifications. 
which means there are a whole bunch of presumably extremely qualified people who don't fit those aesthetic qualifications who are not getting hired. That's discrimination. Then you look at the people who are being hired and they're being brought in for aesthetic reasons, not necessarily for professional or intellectual contributions. So within the workplace, they are being ill-treated devalued, demeaned, and then they're asked to wear certain kinds of clothes. You have to, there was both explicit and implicit direction. You have to wear high heels. You have to wear, and this also came down through his top aides, expensive, tailored outfits. Um, he called them by nicknames. Other, he and other people didn't use their actual names. There were like, you know, instances of professional, many instances of just professional disrespect, letting them know they weren't worth anything. Then there's the abuse, the culture of yelling, which comes from him and then is repeated by his top staffers. So um, it's, it's all these various ways of increasing your stature by ensuring that everybody around you, your colleagues, your, your employees, your critics, and your competitors are made to know that they have less value than you. One of the things that's happened in the wake of the Me Too movement is that we have a re- we've opened up a conversation about a kind of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and sexual violence that's really important and we need to keep having it. But we also need to start being able to talk about these forms of abuse that are not as highly sexualized, that are not, you know, he made a pass at me stuff. And I want to talk about the devaluation and the and the delegitimization part that happens, um, which you vividly describe in your piece. Like the, there's a, a, a woman that was driven to call a suicide hotline because she felt so devalued, so invisible, so worthless. I guess I'm sort of question. My question is like, how do how do we begin to talk about that? What are the things that we can point to? Well, I think that we do need to talk about, and, and this was a frustration that I had even at the height of the hashtag Me Too period in, the, in late 2017 and early 2018, and I, I think I wrote about it back then a little bit, that that period really did help us to sharpen and deepen our understanding of how sexualized harassment um, does a, is a form of systemic discrimination and does systemic harm, right, and shapes workplaces in unequal ways. Um, by giving certain people, especially when, especially though not exclusively women, uh, less power than, than men who are still most likely to be the bosses. But adjacent to that, there's this whole other like chasm of stuff that we couldn't quite get to. And one of the reasons with, with me too, and, and I think that we have, we're doing further work on this in talking about the systemic racism and the kind of reckonings around white, the whiteness of, of our power systems. And that has been happening in recent years too, around a Black Lives Matter movement, around media reckonings about how, how white our storytellers have been and how whiteness has been mistaken for objectivity and as baseline perspective in this country and in its media. That's a conversation we're having. All of this stuff is incredibly hard to talk about Um, because people, it's so uncomfortable and people want these bright lines. They want bright lines. Like, okay, tell me what's bad. You hear this all the time. Like, okay, what are the rules? What's bad? What are we not allowed to do? And, and so there are places where you've drawn specific bright lines. Like we know that groping quid pro quo, the N word, right? Like there are certain things, right? We want to make it simple and clear cut. And of course that doesn't begin to get to the kinds of forms of, of, uh, 
of power abuse that these kinds of behaviors can take. And so this is, this is a story that, that does work to get at that. And I think better understanding how Andrew Cuomo maintained his power and the people that it damaged and the damage that it did to his ability to do his job to actually govern well, because there is a very strong connection between the way that he behaved in his workplace and that he had his top aides also behave. It wasn't just him. He ran an institution that valued these approaches to communication and the maintenance of power and power hierarchies. And the various things that happened in the wake of that Good people were driven out. Last ad break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Now, I just moved. And one of the disorienting things about being in a new home and in a new city is that all of my rituals have been disrupted. I used to have a really set morning routine and I've been having a hard time getting back in the swing of it. But I have an amazing life hack. It is never too late to start your day all over again. If I get up and immediately launch into my day and get overwhelmed, one of the ways I get myself back on track is to do my morning stuff, like eat breakfast. Eat a breakfast that's high in protein, low in sugar, but still feels like a treat. Magic Spoon cereal. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, at least 13 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving and only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. And Magic Spoon will be releasing two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time only. Cookies and cream and maple waffle. Comforting, indulgent, but not sinful and available only for a limited time. You can order just those flavors, or you can build a box with their other flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. And if you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. My favorite Magic Spoon trick is to mix them up. Chocolate and peanut butter, cinnamon and maple, cookies and cream and chocolate. Maybe I'll graduate to mixing three at a time. Who knows? Peanut butter, cinnamon, and maple. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab the new limited editions of cookies and cream and maple waffle or build a custom bundle of cereal to try out today. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the US or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no question to ask. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. I'm excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Nebbia. Backed by investors like Tim Cook, it's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. They've spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and it's anything but ordinary. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. With easy self-installation, Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or messing with tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. Nebbia balances functionality with a clean aesthetic to achieve a timeless design. It's available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom, white and chrome, spot-resistant nickel, matte black, and black and chrome. My new place 
only has a shower. It's a nice shower, but I thought I would miss baths. With Nebbia, I don't. It's basically a standing bath. You're standing in a cloud of steam and water, and it's just as relaxing, and it saves water and money. It's a trip to the spa without a trip to the spa, completely relaxing, and my only commute is crawling into bed. Nebbia also offers accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and bath mats. I have the bath mat, which is luxurious and soft and resists dirt and germs, so I wash it less, so I'm saving money and water that way too. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199, and for with friends like these listeners, we have a special deal. The first 100 people to use code FRIENDS at Nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so jump on it. Go to Nebbia.com slash friends, that's N-E-B-I-A.com slash friends to check out what they have to offer. Again, the first 100 people to use code FRIENDS when checking out will save 15% on all Nebbia products. Again, that's nebbia.com slash friends and use that code FRIENDS to save 15%. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Olipop. Olipop is a new kind of soda. They have delicious nostalgic flavors like vintage cola, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, and strawberry vanilla without the sugar and cloying taste of regular soda. The vintage cola was a revelation to me. This is why people like cola. I've never liked Coke. It's just too sweet and heavy. Vintage cola tastes like what I think the original, but not maybe the original, original medicinal Coke probably tastes like. Olipop uses functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. Olipop doesn't taste too sweet because it's not filled with sugar. The vintage cola has just two grams of sugar compared to regular Coca-Cola, which has 39 grams of sugar. Orange Squeeze has five grams of sugar, whereas Orange Fanta has 44 grams of sugar. Olipop is so confident you will love their product, they offer a 100% money-back guarantee for orders placed through their website. And we have worked out an exclusive deal for With Friends Like These podcast listeners. Receive 20% off plus free shipping on their best-selling variety pack. This is a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. Go to drinkolipop.com slash friends or use the code friends at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash friends. This discount is only valid for their variety pack. Olipop can be found in over 3,000 stores around the country, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger, Wegmans, and Air One, but you're going to want to order online. Drinkolipop.com slash friends. I think I've had a little bit of a revelation here, <laughs> which is that I've wanted to kind of get our conversation going around how can we talk about this kind of abuse in a way that it, it that enables us to be critical of uses of abuses of power that aren't highly sexualized, right? And I've been thinking like, okay, so how do we get people to like be alert about that? How do we like get to recognize it? And what I just realized is something perhaps that you've always been talking about all along, which is that it is still sexualized. That is the thing. It is still gendered, maybe is the right way to put it, that this exists in a system of white patriarchy, that it's not, oh, we have this thing that's called patriarchy and we need to talk about that and, you know, sexual harassment when that happens. And, oh, we have this thing called white supremacy and we need to talk about that when that happens, that this abuse of power exists in that structure. It's it's part of, for lack of a better signpost the me too conversation it is not like oh there's a separate thing that's the non-sex stuff it's all part of the same problem yes i mean i sh- yes absolutely 
insofar as sexual harassment is part of how a, a crucial way in which power is abused. Yes. Um, I will say that to some degree, one of the things that I've thought about a lot is, you know, we are used to specifically with regard to this question of gendering or sexualizing some of these behaviors and understanding that as I think part of what you're saying is it's not just sexual if it involves groping or a man coming on to a woman. It is also gendered insofar as this is a performance in the, when it's a man doing it. And there are also, and I write in the piece about women who are engaging in these same behaviors. Um, but there, it is a masculinized, it, it's about proving masculinity in a lot of ways. Perhaps we need to be thinking about our experiences and not just looking through that lens of, oh, I felt like he hit on me. And therefore, that's that's a thing that I need to talk about or I, I want to process or I want to be aware of. It can be not getting hit on and not feeling like and not feeling like it's because you're a woman. But even like in your piece, there's a woman who says, I knew I was there just because how I looked. That is an abuse of power, too. That is that kind of subtle abusive behavior that isn't really about being hit on, right? No, I think that the word that we would use to describe that and a lot of this and is sexism. Which is different which is distinct from not different not set, it is it is a concept that includes but does not always entail sexualized harassment. I guess I was thinking because I was also thinking of the woman that was a speechwriter and I was thinking about just experiences in my own life and the whole like tenor of the Cuomo workplace, which is any way that you make people feel invisible is probably bad. Yes. And, and especially, and, and that let's, let's also make sure that we acknowledge that this is happening across structural categories of people, right? So yes, there's also individual harm, right? Um, and, but what we're talking about here is many instances of individual power abuse and harm that shape the nature of an administration so that you have, for example, Cuomo's administration is quite famously, and this has been true for a long time and people have been pointing it out for a long time, oppressively white. In one of the most diverse and progressive states, you have a state government whose executive chamber is blindingly and has long been with a couple of notable exceptions, blindingly white. Right. And that is, that's not representative government. And that is a systemic problem. And it is, it's, it's maintained in part probably by lots of different forms of individual power abuse. Um, you know, if you have a, a, there's one woman who says in my piece on a list that she realized soon after she got, she, she came to the Cuomo administration, incredibly bright eyed. She says, full of Pollyanna thinking she's from Rochester and is incredibly passionate about her hometown and her state. And she came into the Cuomo administration full of, um, ambition and energy as a young woman. And she gets there and she describes realizing her very, she had a lot of confusing and contradictory feelings. She's a young woman Cuomo 
asked her about her dating life, uh, came up to her, put his hands, you know, touched her arms, her hand, you know, at parties, regularly invited her to special things. Everybody in his administration said, oh, the governor likes you. And he he nicknamed her things like Sparky and Sweetheart. Um, And she was very torn between wanting to feel like, oh, the governor likes me and knowing, as she says, in her heart of hearts, that it was because of how she looked and not because of her ideas or her commitments to New York State or her ambitions for the government, that he wasn't valuing her that way. You were just made to feel like you didn't register, you didn't matter. And that actually has, and that's part of how the power is maintained, because if that gets inside you, the notion that you could ever challenge that person evaporates because you've been convinced that you're nothing and that what you say should you tell your story of how you were treated or, you know, or how you were lied to or you, how you were asked to lie on behalf of the administration, which is something that, that people told me about how you were, how you were berated or asked to berate others, which is something that people told me about. If you told those stories, they won't matter because you don't matter. So that, that work of making those who were in any, who might in any way be in a position to challenge or complicate your grip on power feel like they're worthless, like they don't even register as human, actually is one of the methods to protect yourself ever from having that power challenged. Um, because you convince everybody else that there is no point in ever challenging it and ever registering a complaint because those people don't count. Anybody who's not you or who would stand in opposition to you in any way does not matter enough to register. And it is, so it has an end. It, 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 it's not just a means. It is, it also produces an end. And it has worked for Cuomo for a long time. All of his tactics of devaluation, bullying, threats, intimidation, creating a culture of fear, um, and of subjugation have insulated him from exactly what's happening to him now. And it- in when we speak and again, sort of trying to draw the our, our view, you know, a little bit broader beyond the, the what we started the conversation around me too. There is this, it, there is a continuity in that the way that you disrupt it is to talk about it. That bullying exists only because you just said bullying can continue to exist because the people that can complain about it feel like they don't matter. Right. And that if they, and if they individually, so this gets back to whole concepts of collective action and organizing and an activist sphere that I think increasingly are moving into an electoral sphere. Right. So, um, so if you are part of a marginalized group, right. Or a part of multiple marginalized groups. Um, one of the things that has been true throughout history is that, that one of the ways to combat the abusive central power structures with which you may be at odds is to form coalitions with other marginalized people, because you individually may not have the power to, to challenge, um, an abusive power system without getting squashed by that power system. But that if you come together, right, there's power in a union. So, um, Coalition building has been one of, you know, an activist strategy over centuries, generations. Um, And I think that this is an instance in which you see that happening and and the hashtag me too, period. I keep wanting to get back to this idea about like, we need to, you know, talk about it, name it, tell the stories about it, because... Or I guess maybe the lesson is we just need to hear it when people say it, because that's actually what happened, right? 
is people were talking about what happened with Cuomo. You just said it was out in the open. It wasn't that people weren't telling their stories. It's that people were telling their stories and they weren't getting heard. So this is something I have long talked about with regard to women's anger. I wrote a book in 2018 called Good and Mad that was about women's anger in challenge to oppressive power structures um, and how that anger has, in many instances throughout our history, reshaped our politics and our nation in ways that are never credited. Um, And often when I wrote that book and, and talked about it, people would say, would ask me sort of for strategic tips, right? About like, how do I better express my anger? How can I, how can I give voice to my period injustice in a way that won't get delegitimized or that I won't get punished for? And there are no answer to those questions, right? Because, and, it, but what, one of the things I came to see very clearly was that what we have, there's no, there's no expressive strategy that can guarantee that your power ch- challenge isn't going to get quashed or punished, right? If you're, if you're coming from the margins toward centralized power, but you can't responsibly tell people like, yeah, go in and get righteously mad because the fact is they can get fired. They, they get reputations for being difficult or crazy. They can get, they can be arrested. You know, women of color, a furious black women, furious for being pulled over for no reason, cannot express their fury at the injustice of this without literally risking their lives. So there's no expressive guidebook, right, that can tell you how to successfully voice your anger and get heard, okay? The only sort of prescriptive thing that I can say to everybody is that we actually have to change the way that those challenges are received. And that is something that is far more in the control, not just of the person who is angry and wants to challenge, but in all those of us who are consuming media, paying attention to politics in workplaces, right? And that's something that I would say more broadly um, about anger at inequity and anger at, at injustice and power abuse is we need to listen more actively, more responsibly, more responsibly and more responsively to, to people who are giving voice to complaint, critique, and challenge. Take it seriously, right? There have been people who have been trying to tell us this. Rebecca Katz, who, is a, who managed uh, Cynthia Nixon's campaign against Cuomo in 2018, actually said this to the New York Times, and it was very powerful to me about Cuomo. She said, we tried to warn you, right? There, there have been people out there blaring this message for years and, and people didn't take it seriously enough. And so the thing to do exactly is to listen, to listen, to think about what it means when you have people telling stories of abuse, of being yelled at, of, be, of being marginalized, of being tokenized, of being demeaned, of being discriminated against, right? Even if the person, perhaps especially if the person that they're telling that story about is someone who is otherwise lionized and like, you know, otherwise untouchable, pay attention to those stories, take them seriously, ask more questions about them. Rebecca, I dread the times that I want to have you on. <laughs> no, it's never good. It's never good news <laughs> when I'm like, you know what, Rebecca should come on the show. <laughs> But it is always edifying and necessary to talk to you. And I just really appreciate the work you're doing all the time. Thank you so much. That's very lovely. It's always, it is always a pleasure, a grim pleasure uh, to be here talking with you. Thank you. Rain is the organization we suggest you look to for support. 
if you want it. But I want to remind you that Rain also needs your support. Reports of sexual abuse, incest, and assault have skyrocketed during the pandemic. For the first time in Rain's history, a majority of those calling the hotline are minors. If you are able to donate, they need your support now more than ever. Their website has donation information as well as what you need to get support. So go there to give or to get. Rain.org. We talked to Rebecca Traster from New York Magazine, whose article about Cuomo is entitled Abuse and Power. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick helps us out in more ways than I can count. And let me give you that rain info one more time. 800-656-HOPE or rain, rain with two ends, dot org. And I cannot stress this enough. There is no such thing as an experience with sexual violence or gendered harassment that is not serious enough to talk about. If you have ever had a colleague who used his or her power to make you feel small, to extract labor, to humiliate you or control you, it matters, it's serious, and you deserve help. Take care of yourselves. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.